0: Welcome to the first lecture for History 110. This is going to be given on Monday, August 26th. Let's remind ourselves of the quote we read from Russell M. Peters. The other day, history is not a set of truths to be memorized. History is an ongoing process of interpretation and learning. There is room for more than one history, there is room for many voices. That was from Russell M. Peters, a Wampanoag elder from the coast of Massachusetts on Cape Cod. So what else we're going to talk about today is what do we learn from Native American history. We're going to take Russell M. Peters' quote to a deeper level to understand how we know what we know, or what scholars called epistemology. What we need to know for this class is that Indian history is different from American history, but it also tells us a lot about America. Indian history unearths what American history takes for granted that the land was a wilderness on which immigrants might create a new world for themselves. When we realize that that assumption is false, we are forced to reevaluate the values, or at least the presumed coherence or dominance of those values, on which the nation was founded. Indian history also opens up the ways in which ideals like freedom and individualism were the product of historical processes of interaction between Indian and European people and cultures. So those ideas didn't spring out of the heads of people you've read about in history like Thomas Jefferson or Tom Paine or ideological political parties you've read about such as the Free Soil Party from the 1850s. Instead, Indians' place in American history reminds us that American history actually began before 1776 and even before 1492. It changes the American narrative from one of linear Western expansion to a multi-centered, multinational history where power constantly shifted hands and watershed events took place in unexpected places. It reminds us that expansion brings chaos, and that Indians countered such chaos with resilience and innovation. Indian people made their own histories and in doing so shaped the American story. Indian history shows us that American history is less a story of westward movement and more like a kaleidoscope with everyone shifting positions and the picture changing depending on your viewpoint. Some people might say that this approach makes history too relative, that isn't there some kind of overarching truth that can be gained? Can't we know about facts? Do we always have to talk about perspective? Well, yes, there is truth to be gained, and we can talk about facts. We have a responsibility, though, to present as many facts as we can, because they will contradict each other. Doing history is about understanding which version is more reliable, and understanding that your definition of reliable is influenced by your own assumptions about time, space, space, spirituality and community, or in other words, the kind of ethnocentrism that we talked about in class on Wednesday. Truth is a bigger question. History is an important part of shaping cultural expectations and social behavior, and it is in this function of history that we find truth. When we study history, we are engaged in myth-making, not just presentation or discovery of facts. Myth and history are usually thought of as polar opposites, but they're more like twins. They have their problems with one another, and they're not exactly alike, but they are cut from the same cloth. So there are several themes that I want to talk about that reveal why we study Native American history and what we learn from Native American history. The first one is the importance of place. The second one is the importance of migration. The third one is the importance of family, and the fourth one is the importance of tribal diversity. So let me start with place. Place is important because history happened at a particular place, alongside intersecting and overlapping experiences. Places create identity, religion, and economy. For the Western Apache, for example, land plays a role in actually shaping behavior. Western Apache tribal member Annie Peaches says, The land is always stalking people. The land makes people live right. The land looks after us. The land looks after people. So what she's saying is that there's a bond between individuals and the landscape. As a consequence of that bond, people who don't live right, in her words, will reflect critically on their misconduct and resolve to improve it. So both stories, slash history, and land shape Apache's conceptions of themselves. Conforming to certain standards of behavior is necessary for people who live in small, close societies and at some economic risk. The second theme is the importance of migration. You can see this most closely when you look at the language map that's available on the website. You see a tremendous diversity of Native American languages, and in fact there are over 500 that are still alive and well and being spoken today in the, in on the continent of North America. Some tribes still have a native language that's spoken in the home. The Navajo community, for example, is the lar- is the tribe with the largest percentage of speakers who first learn Navajo. But the Eastern Band Cherokee, the Wampanoag, again, in Massachusetts, the Ojibwe in uh, the Great Lakes area, a lot of tribes have active reclamation, language reclamation efforts going on. And sea language is a very, very important way to look at not just their culture and history, but their relationship to various places. The language map, when you look at it, does not undermine the importance of place. It simply shows that Native American people have moved around and developed different kinds of relationships to different kinds of places. So then we have the importance of family. A Dakota anthropologist named Ella Deloria, who was from, uh, she grew up in South Dakota, but the Dakota people are in Minnesota, um, North and South Dakota, some in Wyoming, and Nebraska, she wrote back in the 1920s, I think, that by kinship all P- Dakota people were held together in a great relationship that was theoretically all inclusive and coextensive with the Dakota domain or with the Dakota land. Everyone who was born a Dakota belonged in it. Nobody need be left outside. Dakota life stripped of accessories was quite simple. One must obey kinship rules. One must be a good relative. In the last analysis, every other consideration was secondary. Property, personal ambition, glory, good times, life itself. Without the aim of being a good relative, and the constant struggle to attain that aim, the people would no longer be Dakotas in truth. They would no longer even be human. I'm still quoting Ella Deloria here. She continues to say, to be a good Dakota then was to be humanized, civilized, and to be civilized was to keep the rules imposed by kinship for achieving civility, good manners, and a sense of responsibility toward every individual dealt with. That's a great summary of the importance of family or kinship to Native American people. In the last analysis, every other consideration was secondary. The final theme that helps us understand why we need to study Native American history and what we learn from it is the theme of tribal diversity. Another map on the website uh, shows the kinds of so-called culture areas that anthropologists have derived to help understand patterns between the many, many different groups of Native American people. But um, Native people and some Anthropologists, too, are questioning the utility of this idea of culture areas, because it implies that there are discrete boundaries between uh, Native American peoples, boundaries of place, but also boundaries of culture, that, for example, the Native people who inhabited North Carolina are radically different than the Native people who inhabited Oklahoma, who inhabited... New Mexico, etc. Now what we know, of course, is that Native people still inhabit those areas and that we are becoming more... Our cultures are changing and we're becoming more and more diverse over time. We want to know tribal diversity and we want to understand it because first and foremost it teaches us that when native people change they don't lose their identities as natives when native culture changes it doesn't become less native instead it just changes like every other society and when we recognize tribal diversity and why it exists and how it exists we begin to see indians as as true people as people who are have civilizations of their own that they've maintained over a very long period of time. So as you're doing your reading for this week, you're probably going to wonder what in the world do these texts mean? They seem so foreign, and they don't seem to describe the world in the way that we normally would expect it to. But there's a certain rationale to this uh, style of telling stories, and that's what I want to tell you about in this lecture oral tradition represents how native people took their observations of the natural world and interpreted those observations to be the products of forces and powers beyond their control sometimes they constructed stories to explain natural phenomena and give them moral meanings and that's what's an oral tradition it's a conceptual framework for interpreting and si- and shaping social action so one is focused specifically on creation types of stories, and there are several themes that creation stories and oral tradition relate about Indian life. The first one is explaining the inhabited world, the second one is explaining migration, the third one is explaining the relationship of people to their place, and the fourth one is revealing belief systems that ensure harmony and subsistence. So the first theme, explaining the inhabited world. Archaeologists do this with the Bering Strait theory that undoubtedly you've heard about and we'll talk more about in the next lecture. But Indian cultures do it with creation stories. So they talk about in the beginning, before the formation of the earth. Um, I want to sort of summarize or quote briefly from an Iroquois story about Sky Woman. Sky Woman was the first Iroquois human being, essentially, or the first being on the earth, and who the Iroquois believe populated the earth. So what she, her story goes like this. This is told by uh, an Iroquois elder in 1816. He said, in the beginning before the formation of the earth, the country above the sky was inhabited by superior beings over whom the great spirit presided. His daughter, having become pregnant by an illicit connection, he pulled up a great tree by the roots and threw her through the cavity thereby formed. But to prevent her utter destruction, he previously ordered the great turtle to get from the bottom of the waters some slime on its back and to wait on the surface of the water to receive her on it. When she had fallen on the back of the turtle, with the mud she found there she began to form the earth, And by the time of her delivery of her child, she had increased it to the extent of a little island. Her child was a daughter, and as she grew up, the earth extended under their hands. So this is a story that has a woman creating the earth with the help of a turtle, and of course the help of the great spirit. And then a woman and her daughter continuing to grow the earth, and... As that child grew up, the earth extended under their hands, is how the storyteller tells it. I think he means that not just the land extended under their hands, but also that people began to populate the land from the wombs of Sky, Sky Woman and her child, another girl, another woman. Um, so there's two important things that are implied by this story. One is the importance of women in creation— which, of course, we all have mothers. We know why mothers are important in creation. We don't typically, however, associate women with creating the world, and that is how the Iroquois, in fact, saw it. The other important theme to see in this creation story is the importance of duality. So we have an upper world where the superior beings live, the country above the sky is this... Uh, storyteller said it, and where the great spirit presided. And then we have a lower world, which was all water, that which is where many animals lived, including this great turtle um, who put mud on his back so that the sky woman could fall on it. There was also obviously a tree that grew up, connected the lower world, the watery world, to the upper world. So there's a connection between these two worlds represented in the tree that the great spirit pulled up. But, um and then it, that connection becomes, is continued when Sky Woman falls through the hole left by the tree onto the turtle's back. So that theme of duality is something that's going to come up in oral traditions again and again. And many, many tribes have a a common theme of the upper world and the lower world. Sometimes, well, there are always a lot of variations on that theme, but one of the important things that you'll find in a number of stories is the idea of different worlds that human beings or spirit beings, superior beings or animals, um, inhabit. The second theme that creation stories generate is to explain migration. Now, archaeologists tend to use artifacts, um, arrowheads, pottery, lots of different things that they discover to examine movement and to examine trade between native peoples. And Indian cultures incorporate this kind of knowledge into their stories. So, several tribes in the Southeast, for example, their origin stories talk about the creation of families or clans, C L A N S, with a small c. And uh, sometimes those clans will emerge out of fog, for example, in a tradition traditional southeastern Indian story. The Hopi, for example, talk about migrating to their homeland in what is now northern Arizona through four different worlds. Those four different worlds are undoubtedly spiritual in nature, but they could have also represented, or they might still represent, uh, different Parts of the land over which the Hopi moved, in order to get to their mesas. The Chippewa, Ottawa, and Potawatomi Indians in the Great Lakes areas have the tradition that their peoples came from the mouth of what is now the Saint Lawrence River to what is now their home around the Great Lakes, and those types of traditions are are often geographically specific. and in their telling, and other traditions like that of the Hopi are much more um, spiritually significant and are difficult to attach to specific places. The third theme that oral tradition helps us with is explaining the relationship of people to their place. So I talked about this um, earlier when we discussed migration, when we discussed the importance of place. And both archaeologists and Indian cultures are concerned with power, and particularly places of power. Archaeologists will talk about powerful places as burial sites. They'll talk about mounds, how Indian people built uh, structures of different kinds to emphasize power in a location. Indian cultures will often talk about the specific important places, such as uh, a cane break, in a particular story, a, a, uh, a ditch bank is another way of saying a cane break, or an important town, an important historic site. These are places that have power. And their migration is, the point of migration is to end at the right place, not just any place. So that uh, tells us even more about the importance of place to Native American communities, and also how oral traditions point out that there are particular places that are important, not just any place on the land, uh, some tribes tell stories, creation stories that don't have much to do with people at all. The Wampanoag, for example, Russell Peters's uh, community, don't tell a story about the creation of people. They simply say that they've been here for ten thousand years since the glaciers receded from their homeland. But they also, but they tend to tell stories about the creation of their homeland. In particular, um, there is a very important figure in their oral tradition called Mashup, and Mashup is believed to be responsible for the islands of Martha's Vineyard, the Elizabeth Islands, No Man's Land, and Nantucket Islands all off of the coast of Massachusetts. Mashup was a benevolent being who was a giant, he had supernatural powers. the Wampanoag retain a lot of details about Mashup and his his lifestyle and what he liked and disliked. His favorite daily food was a broiled whale, which he usually ate whole at a meal. Um, he also threw whales on the coast f- so that the Wampanoag people could have food. Um, now. This importance of the whale and moshup is are tremendously tied together, as well as the land on which the Wampanoag people let live. So in the time before the present time, whales came close to shore um, because they hadn't learned to fear people killing them. And Masha would sometimes wade into the ocean, pick up a whale, and fling it against the cliffs of Martha's Vineyard to kill it. And then he would cook it over, the, over a fire that burned continually. Now, those cliffs are a particular color of dark red, and they have, they're made of clay that's several different colors. And the Wampanoag tell us that it's the blood from these whales that stained the clay banks of the cliffs dark red. The, those, quif, those cliffs, which are called the Aquina Cliffs, are a sacred place to the Wampanoag people, and they f- feel that those cliffs have a hundred million years of history that they remember in their oral tradition. Um, one tribal member said that Mashup was the first schoolmaster. He was the first teacher. From his home on the cliffs, he taught the people respect he also taught us to be charitable. For when he had great stores of fish, he gave of his abundance. So that's another example of the theme we talked about earlier, the importance of place and teaching people how to live right. When Wampanoag people go to the cliffs of Aquinnah, they're often reminded of Mashup's role in teaching their people respect and teaching their people to be charitable because his example was one of charity. The final theme that I want to bring up is um, how oral tradition reveals belief systems and that those belief systems ensure harmony and subsistence. That's the basic function of belief systems in Native American communities. Oral tradition is primarily about understanding a group's belief system and applying that understanding to everyday life. It doesn't sound factual or scientific because it wasn't meant to sound factual or scientific. It was meant to sound spiritual, it's meant to sound like a belief system, a kind of sacred text that happens to be spoken instead of written down. So there are a few things to note when in understanding how stories reveal belief systems. The first thing I want you to remember is how stories talk about or how belief systems and stories deal with the present time. So oral tradition retells the past in order to explain the present. Archaeology tends to proceed in a linear fashion, as in there was the Pleistocene era, and then there was some era that came after the Pleistocene, and this is how the earth evolved in a chronological fashion over time. But many oral traditions talk about time in a very different way. Um, Southeastern Indians... Uh, tend to talk about time as ancient days or long ago when the world was young and sometimes they'll use words like once a very vague um, word that could mean any time in the past but probably the historic past instead of ancient days or they might talk about last week it depends on what it is that the story they're trying to tell and what it tells us about the life we're living today so the past is always present in creation stories and in oral tradition. Science tends to proceed from the knowledge gained in the past, but then typically leaves it behind. Culture t- Cultural traditions, with a scientific bent, view creation as an event distant in time and which, from which everything proceeds forward, oriented around individual action and the individual's quest to understand the world. This is the kind of understanding of time that we see in the Judeo-Christian texts, for example. But Native oral tradition, in contrast, is supposed to give instruction and education for the present. Whether or not the things really happened and when and where they happened, we don't know from experience. We only know what our elders tell us. But Black Elk, a Lakota Sioux elder and healer from South Dakota, talked about time this way. He said, this they tell, and whether it happened so or not, I do not know. But if you think about it, you can see that it is true. Science and oral tradition have fundamentally different ways of telling stories. For a society who sees time in a linear fashion, like our American society does, we tend to rely on linear methods of storytelling. For a society who sees time in a circular fashion, like many Native American societies do, we rely on methods that explicitly use the past to talk about the present. We must understand that they are different because they are serving different purposes in society. You might frame this um, duality the same way as we talk about the creation and evolution debate. Both sides seem bitterly opposed to one one another, but they can be reconciled if we give equal weight in our society to spirituality and to science. We actually need both to be whole human beings. One is not always more important than the other, and one does not always have more validity than the other. They can both coexist. And this is one of the general insights that Native American oral tradition provides us with and Native American belief systems provide us with. The second theme to think about related to Native American belief systems is that they are practical. Indian oral traditions that focus on the present time relate belief systems that are very practical. The focus is on life and sustaining life rather than on death and the afterworld. Belief systems are also personal, dealing with everyday events and challenges that happen to human beings. The animal stories for children of Kusa portray animals anthropomorphically. Kusa was an ancient society in the southeastern United States that portrayed animals anthropomorphically. Their personalities mimicked humans in order to instruct children on how they should live every day. There is, of course, a philosophical element to native belief systems also, but it is not an abstract element. The emphasis is on understanding the deepest unity of all these elements, of everyday matters, of the design of living species, of food consumed, of clothes worn, prayers given, songs sung, how animals behave, how to get a good corn crop, etc. Everything has to do with everything else. And that is the kind of inherent philosophical element to native belief systems, is that all elements of life are integrated, and we can see how they're integrated and how... Us understand that, and understand how to succeed in that environment if we believe and if we do, if we live up to our community responsibility, particularly the responsibilities that our family gives us. So the third theme about belief systems that oral tradition helps reveal is one of duality. What I talked about earlier when uh, we talked about the Sky Woman uh, creation story from the Iroquois. So. Indian worlds are often divided between upper and lower worlds with the earth in between, and this kind of duality extends to everything else, men and women, plants and animals, order and disorder. Um, Sky Woman's daughter wound up having two boys a good one and an evil one, two twin boys. And it was those twin boys that created the world we know today. Sky Woman was creating a kind of world on the back of the turtle, but the Iroquois credit the, the twins with um, creating the world as we know it today, sun and darkness, with humans and monsters, corn and weeds, etc., So while oral tradition has this focus on good and evil, such forces are often depicted as twins. Um, This focus on duality, in this focus on duality, no one way of being is excluded or banished. So you're not... Excluded because you represent evil, perhaps, but rather evil is important to be dealt with and explained in the oral tradition. In this way, native belief systems are inclusive, and while reminding everyone of sort of dueling forces that we have to watch out for. Another theme in native belief systems is that of power. So each force, each world, upper or lower, each kind of being on earth, animal or human, whether good or evil, has a power that flows through it. The Algonquian languages talk about this power as Manitou. Um, The Society of Kusa that I mentioned a minute ago described this power as the master of breath. The Iroquois talk about this power sometimes as the great spirit. The rituals of native belief systems exist to help humans gain access to spiritual power through both personal and public means. In the Northeast, for example, where the Wampanoag live, the Iroquois live, etc., people lived that believed that spirits inhabited all things, and that all spirits had an equal status, and that each spirit had a kind of power. Keeping these spirits happy so that their power did not affect human life in a negative way was an important goal of religious rituals. Humans themselves could gain power through dreams, and acting on dreams is an important way to appease spirits. Some humans hold extraordinary power, or some uh, beings like Mashup hold extraordinary power. In some southeastern Indian societies, chiefs, for example, were thought to possess the power of the sun, which was a major deity in southeastern religions. Another theme of Native American belief systems is the desire to restore balance. So within this context of dualities, neither of which is banished, you're not banishing evil because it's evil, you're dealing with evil, The central problem of human society becomes how to maintain balance, order, and harmony. So for the Cherokee, the upper world was a place of purity and harmony, whereas the lower world was a place of disorder and chaos. In Cherokee belief system, the the key to a successful and happy life is respect for each other, for the land, and for spiritual power. Good behavior, such as politeness, deferring to elders, listening, tolerating the ignorance of youth, um, sharing, those kinds of things are critical to harmonious relations. Most Cherokee people, native people, indeed all over North America, lived in small villages or communities, and harmony made this type of life possible. It was practical, and thus consistent with the requirements of a belief system. Religious rituals maintained and restored harmony and renewed the world. Many religions all over the country have particular world renewal ceremonies or aspects of their belief systems. The Hopi, for example, believe that Kachina spirits bring rain to renew uh, their homeland in the deserts of northern Arizona and to grow corn in an area that gets only 8 inches of rain a year many religions in california for example have specific world renewal ceremonies that are designed to send messages to the spirit world to re- receive messages from the spirit world and thus to renew the world for not just people who are followers of that belief system but for everyone in the world the importance religious leaders are important because they function to discover the cause of Accidents in the community of um, things being out of balance. So when boundaries between these dual aspects of life were, became too blurred, religious leaders existed to restore balance through ceremonies. Blurring boundaries too much could cause sickness, death, and disorder. And healers also would call on spiritual power to return the individual and the community to some kind of balance. Then finally... The function of a native belief system is to assure subsistence, to assure that people have access to food, shelter, water, clothing, and the basic necessities of life. Belief systems exist to make crops grow and to ensure the success of the hunt or gathering. Societies, native societies where agriculture predominated, also participated in hunting and gathering, and vice versa. Ceremonies functioned to assure a good crop, a good hunt, and to uphold men and women's places in the economic life of the community. So, again, in the southeast, for example, men's roles as hunters gave their spiritual guardians particularly relationships to animals' spiritual guardians. If both men and animals were to live in harmony, the hunter must communicate through prayer to arrange for the animal's willingness to surrender himself to the hunter. Women, on the other hand, were farmers, and they pray and sing songs to assure a good corn crop. Their skills as farmers are upheld by their spiritual relationships. One example of this is the green corn ceremony, which is an elaborate public ritual that goes on for several days that empowers humans. The green corn ceremony was and continues to be practiced by tribes all over the East, though of course it's slightly different in different places. But the fact that it's practiced everywhere, its universality, speaks to the power of corn as a means of subsistence and to the powerful connection between ritual and subsistence. It's a ceremony that brings all things in balance, renews the world and the community, and harmonizes relationships between people. That's it for our lecture on oral tradition, and stay tuned for our next short lecture about archaeology.